Welcome to episode 679 with my guest Heather Gonzalez. Uh, This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, Back in July, we had Christine Lane as a guest to talk about the intersection of psychology and money. And now her company, Mind Over Money, is a sponsor. As a financial counselor, she helps people get control of their finances and ditch their shame around money. Check her out at mindovermoneysite.com and listen to our episode 651. And we will put a link to uh, Christine's uh, website. Again, that's mindovermoneysite.com. She's been getting really good results with uh, the listeners who are uh, employing her services. Let's jump into some surveys. This is from... The Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Max, and uh, he writes, what would you say are the top two things that have changed about your personality in the past years? Meaning, what are the things you hated about yourself, but you have objectively improved a lot at? And in parentheses, even if you keep telling yourself you are not good at that. Um, I would say I've gotten, and I've gotten feedback from listeners who say that they can uh, hear this. Uh, that I'm less harsh on the, quote, mistakes, unquote, that I make. Um, I'm more comfortable, I think, letting people uh, love the parts of me that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, And I would say standing up for myself. Uh, I've gotten, that might be the biggest thing in the last couple of years, really the last decade that I've gotten better at. And that... I think is directly uh, related to the support group I go for, uh, go to for struggles around uh, intimacy. And I had no idea that self-care and self-compassion were at the heart of comfort being intimate, whether platonically or romantically with, uh, with other people. Um, you know, I guess it, it slowly dawned on me over the years that, you know, there's no escaping ourselves. We're uniquely positioned to be our own best friends. So why would we be our own worst enemies? It's like if somebody, if if in life you were given a single car and you could never have another car, why would you pull out a baseball bat and start beating it? Uh, why would you say it's not worth having the oil changed? This is from the Psych Ward Experiences Survey, and this is filled out by uh, Katice, who identifies as gender fluid. They're in their 20s. Why were you hospitalized? I was planning my suicide for a while in private, and the only things I would do were writing suicide notes, drinking, smoking, watching TV, going to the bathroom, and that's literally it for months. It wasn't until I had a meltdown at my sister's house in front of my mother and her and started to pull my hair out and storm out that they realized something was wrong. I live with my dad, so she called him and I broke down crying and saying, I just don't want to be here anymore and I hate myself more than you could imagine. 
describe your experiences? I didn't go to a hospital. I went to a residential inpatient facility because my mother is very critical about health care, even though she doesn't have the money to be. But nonetheless, the experience the other girls shared made me thankful. Residential means it's a house that is privately owned by someone who runs a program through it. It was an all-female clientele and staff with six maximum women. It was a trauma-based therapeutic setting where individual and group therapy was centered around it. You always, you'd always be busy slash productive in some way if on your chart you were dealing with depression. You'd be woken up at 7 to 7.15 a.m., you have until 8.30 to eat or smoke and then group therapy for two hours, a 30-minute break, and another group therapy. Then it was lunch, then activity time for a few hours, then group therapy with an activity. And before you knew it, there was free time to do what we wanted, like watch TV, do art, read, talk, play games, whatever. But before it was free time, we did gratitude hour, which was, which was we rated our day on a scale from 1 to 10. The highlight of our day, the lowest part of our day, and our goal for the week. I loved gratitude hour. The food was usually always good. The staff were there for you 24-7, literally anytime for whatever reason. They would support, uh, support you, talk you through things, laugh with you, do activities with you that you didn't want to do alone. I got close with a majority of the girls, and I still talked to two of them seven months later. I was there for 30 days. It helped me a lot. They also helped me get psychological testing while I was there. And this year, it was confirmed I have severe major recurrent depression, or sometimes it's called unipolar, where you don't experience mania, just incredibly deep depression, and see PTSD as well as panic disorder. What was new was that I'm autistic. I wasn't that surprised, given that it runs in the family, but it explained everything. After I left residential, I did three months of outpatient, which I'm so glad I did. I don't think I could have survived, in the parentheses, not killed myself, uh, if, if I didn't, because I still went through some roller coasters. Plus, nobody tells you this, but leaving an inpatient facility after a while gives you culture shock when you enter back into society. I was riding a small riding a small panic attack wave for three days after I left. Regardless, I'm so thankful for the staff there. Maggie, if you're listening, this is Kat. I hope I get to see your play one day. Thank you for that. And I'm I'm so glad that you had a positive experience. And um, I'm sure the reason that this is so vastly different from many people's experiences is that it was a privately run uh, facility and not a state or governmental um, facility. This is from the Love Survey. This is filled out by Codependent with my cat. Uh, and they write, I love waking up before my boyfriend so I can make him coffee and then bring it back to bed and just lay next to him for a while, listening to him breathing, the dog snuggled in the bed between us. I love my work as a therapist. I love that I have worked so hard to transmute my pain and trauma into helping others. I love that I get to use my lived experience to facilitate the healing journeys of others and to pay it forward. I love how far I've come. 
I love swimming. <laughs> swimming? I love swinging in a hammock peacefully on a summer's day. I love the way my Boston Terrier smells like nachos. I've heard of Fritos, dogs smelling like Fritos, but never nachos. And I kind of wonder, are you talking nachos with the good cheese or the horrible pump cheese? I love stupid in-jokes with friends, the kind that make you laugh so hard you both cry. And for years afterwards, all you have to do is reference the joke and you both start to collapse with laughter. I have one of those with my friend uh, Jimmy Pardo. Um, and I can't, I'm not even going to tell the story of the story that he told. That's, the, the reason we laughed is it was such a dumb story that he told and it was really kind of pointless and I made fun or really just pointed out, like, why did you tell me that story that took five minutes that had no point? And all of a sudden, we both started laughing at, because Jimmy's one of the funniest, most creative people that I know. And he always makes me laugh. And it was just such a shock that he could not tell that this was a pointless story as he was telling it. And as he realized that I was right, we both started laughing, and the harder he laughed, the harder I laughed, and vice versa, until, and we were, I think we were on the side of the road somewhere, uh, I thought I was going to vomit, and I had to walk over to a ditch, because I thought I was going to throw up. I can't even remember the last time I laughed so hard I thought I was going to throw up, but yeah, so whenever we see each other, sometimes I go, because the punchline of the the story was in five bucks for the shades and uh so when i see him sometimes i'll go in five bucks for the shades and we'll just start laughing now i feel like that story that i just told is as bad as the five dollars for the shade story that he told me but nobody's laughing uh and finally i love the resilience i've built i've been through hell and back these last 18 months my husband left me in six weeks Six weeks later, my mom died, but I am standing in my power as a wounded healer, finally learning to love who I am and accept the hand I've been dealt with grace. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by uh, a person. Uh, they don't identify a gender, uh, and they call themselves so embarrassed. And they write, do you think that playing, quote, doctor, unquote, with your sister, who is five years younger, is fucked up? I've been feeling lately that this was abuse. And I went on to involve friends, which leaves me so embarrassed. Not doctor exactly. It went further, like orgasms and naked humps. And to this, excuse me, I just want to say, it. I think it's really important, and I'm not a mental health professional, but I think it's really important to separate the possible effect you might have had on another person and your culpability as a child who didn't understand the ramifications of what you were doing and then equating it as an adult with our worthiness as a human being. So, um, I just think that's a really important, and I think it would be good to process these feelings that you have with a, a therapist or, or a support group or a trusted friend, um, and they might help you navigate as to whether or not you want to um, make amends 
uh, with any of those people or if it would be best not to, but hanging on to that and letting what you did as a child who did not really understand what they were doing, letting that inform your perceived value as an adult um, is not healthy. This is from, and thank you for, for sharing that. It must have been really hard to, to um, go back into those thoughts and, and type that out. I appreciate that. This is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by Lindsay, and she writes, I dislike how broad my shoulders and bust are. I dislike how large and soft my upper arms are. I feel like a bups, buxom gal and not in a good way. I dislike how I struggle with weight management and have fluctuated in weight throughout my life. I do like my eyes and eyebrows. I like my hair. I like my legs and feet. I think there's a lot to like, but I can't let go of thoughts telling me I look like a broad, doughy northern peasant. First of all, can I say how much I love that you use the word buxom? I don't think anybody has ever used that in uh, a survey, and it's long overdue. So thank you. Um, and I'm glad that you like some things about yourself. That's always nice because a lot of times when people fill out the body shame survey, it's just, it's all negative. And I love the the phrase broad, doughy, northern peasant. And I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say, you fucking own that, and you put that as the title of your dating profile and just broad doughy northern peasant just looking for someone to enjoy sunsets at 2 p.m. Somebody to enjoy a little millet stew with wooden spoons and some dirt floor missionary. We are going to take a, a quick break, see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Factor. We talk often on the podcast about what you put in your body affects your energy, it affects your mood, uh, often it affects how you feel about yourself. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. Skip the grocery stores, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door with over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan plus, veggie, and more. Plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. Head to factormeals.com slash mental50 and use the code mental50 to get 50% off. That's code mental50 at factormeals.com slash mental50 to get 50% off. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Adam. And he writes, a few weeks ago in therapy, we talked about childhood. And my therapist asked me to imagine myself as a child at some moment that came up and asked, how would you help this boy? And I said, to be honest, I'd kill him. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. 
All my alters have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder and run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Heather Gonzalez, uh, who made the slog from Arizona. I appreciate you coming to, uh, to do that. You've been a listener for a long time. And uh, talk about the the email that you sent me recently. Yeah, so I recently listened to an episode about postpartum onset bipolar disorder with psychosis. And it was a great episode and your guest was so lovely. But it was kind of a lot of silly memories. A lot of the hallucinations and delusions were presented as kind of funny and silly. And just as a survivor and someone who's in contact with a lot of survivors, I thought that it might be good to have a perspective that is a little more universal, which is that this is a really traumatic, life-changing, often life-altering for the worse situation that happens. And so just to share a different perspective. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it. Uh, do you, do you want to just kind of briefly paint some broad strokes of childhood, sure. your view of yourself, how you fit in the world. Okay. Um, what, I, who who mothers are, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All yeah. this stuff that uh, you think might be kind of applicable to your story. So I figured out that my mental health was a little different when I was very, very young. I was probably four or five and having a lot of intrusive thoughts at night, scary things, things that Four-year-olds are scared of houses burning down, people breaking bones. And um, I knew that not everybody felt that way and thought those things. And this wasn't based in something situational where somebody was freaking you out. No, very stable, healthy childhood. Just random kid in the middle of the night having these scary thoughts. And I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want to seem weird or crazy. And it just was kind of the start of a really long period of anxiety for me as a child. So school, I had to get straight A's. I had to do really, really well in sports. And if I le- if I didn't win the championship, I was on track. So if I didn't win the race, my team would fall apart. And it was my responsibility. So th- these were all self-imposed? Yes. Okay. I, I did go to a school for gifted children. And there was kind of this sense that the way you do now in grade school impacts the high school you get into, impacts the college you go to, impacts the rest of your life. So you better get A's now in fourth grade. Um, So there was a lot of anxiety from the school and the kind of other kids and their families, not from my own parents, but that filtered in. And then when I was about 17, I just started to feel really disconnected from the world, kind of in this, I'm not a, kind of like everything was a simulation, but I didn't have the words for that then. And it scared me and I couldn't feel planted in the world and I just started feeling sad and I didn't know why. I remember lying on the ground in our kitchen with my head on my soccer bag just crying and my mom looking at me and like, I don't I don't know what is happening. So they sent me to see my pastor. 
Wasn't a big help. Didn't really know what was happening either. Went to see a psychiatrist. That's when I got put on antidepressants for the first time. At what age? 17. Okay. And then I got sent off to college and I went to a school in San Antonio that was also pretty rigorous and did well in school, did very well academically, but started to have these really deep depressive cycles. And, you know, my my sweet mates would find me crying in the shower, sobbing, didn't really know what to do. Everybody's young. Nobody knows anything about mental illness and um, ended up having to withdraw my sophomore year to come home and finish from home. Still was able to graduate on time, but then after I graduated, actually my my senior year, I felt great. I what the the kind of the end the end of the line story is that I was diagnosed with bipolar one eventually. So at this time, I was misdiagnosed with depression and not on the right meds, and so just having these cycles of depression. Did you experience mania as well? Hypomania at a very small scale. That talk looked, about sweet sweet hypomania. It's oh, amazing. Just scoot up to the table just a little bit closer. So, I know I know having the microphone that the I'm just worried I'm gonna bump is, it with my nose. You're not. And if <laughs> okay. you do, it's no big deal. Okay. I just I don't want the ambient sound of the room when someone's too far away from the mic. I'm kind of a freak about uh, about sound. Okay. So in college it was amazing. I was able I was sleeping well, so it wasn't the kind of lack of sleep hypomania. It was just Eight hours of sleep every night, wake up, go to class, get straight A's, do the musical, be the president of the club. People would ask me, like, are you – they would ask me, are you okay, but not in a – your behavior is concerning. More like, are you actually sleeping? Like, you're you're really doing well. You're super committed. Super committed, super woman was something I heard a lot. So very exciting. And then I would just crash. And when people would refer to you as super woman – was there a part of you that was getting a sense of identity from yes. from this? Yes. Talk, that started, talk about that a little bit. That started earlier, probably in high school, where I just was trying to be this perfect. Perfectionism was a really big deal. And I wanted, you know, I was I was probably the best at art in my in my little cohort of people and was doing very well in track, very well in school. And I had to maintain that. And people would say things like, Oh, she's just perfect. And I, I liked that. I mean, I don't know who wouldn't like that. But um, then when I would crash, it was like, well, I obviously can't maintain that. So I'm a failure. Um, so I kind of cycled between trying to be this really hyper-excelling person and then not able to get out of bed, not able to shower. In in your uh, journey of being diagnosed with bipolar 1 and getting put, I would imagine, on the right meds, Eventually. Eventually. It took many, many years. Did that then allow you to sort out what is your chemical neuro bipolar and what is your personality perfectionism that that is so taxing? Maybe it's not taxing well, for you, but a lot of people I know get into their 30s and 40s and begin to go... I'm tired of trying to be perfect. This is exhausting. So I will say I'm not a perfectionist anymore because I just physically can't be. And it's kind of like I'm just – I wouldn't say I'm just barely making it through the things I'm trying to do. But um, I have to push really hard to get all the things done that I want to do. Because of depression? Um, Yes. And also I just – 
after my postpartum psychosis episode, I've really – my memory is not as good as it was and I forget things. I put things in the wrong place. I'm very clumsy. So just holding everything together feels like a tightrope sometimes. And is is that a common thing? Po- the post- clumsiness isn't, but the memory is for sure. Uh, so let's talk about the event or events. Okay. You have uh, two little girls. I do. I have a seven-year-old, and she's the one I had the episode with. So she was born on a Sunday, and on Friday, I started to have prodromal labor, which is labor that doesn't progress yet. It doesn't open your cervix. So it's just pain, and it kept me awake for that night. They, they, we went to the hospital. They sent me home. We went to the hospital again the next day. They sent me home. Those two nights, I didn't sleep. So then on Sunday, that was the actual day of birth, normal birth, everything healthy, fine, not really any pain, epidural, great birth. And then I started to feel that kind of thing they talk about, like that birth high. I don't know. You're probably not super plugged into the to the birth world, but women who have natural births often talk about this incredible the high they feel. I did after not or during. during, after, they feel like superwoman. They have this huge dopamine rush. I didn't have a natural birth, but I still felt that way. I was kind of vibrating. And in the hospital, the nurses are coming in every couple hours to make you try to nurse and check your vitals, check the baby's vitals. So I didn't sleep and nobody noticed because it's kind of normal at that point. And then we got sent home and felt okay, went back to the pediatrician 24, maybe 48 hours later. I started crying in the pediatrician or maybe shortly after because I had let someone touch her without washing their hands. And the doctor had just said, it's important, just a general statement. And I was like, I didn't do that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And because I had this history of depression, we were really prepared for postpartum depression. And my husband was like, is is this what this is? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then so we're like at maybe we're at like three days of not sleeping after the birth and two days of not sleeping before the birth. So we're at like five days of no sleep at all. Um, and are you feeling anxiety, dread, confusion? What, mm, what, what? Not a lot of anything unusual. It was kind of like hypomania, but okay. I, I mean, I guess it would be mania for the first time. Okay. So that does I don't really need to sleep. I'm not really worried about not sleeping. Nobody knew I wasn't sleeping because my husband was so tired. He would go to sleep. I would lay there like I was going to go to sleep, and then I would go get the baby, wake her up try to breastfeed her when she wasn't hungry, um, stare at her. And I think we get we were just talking about the timeline on our way up here. And so she was born on a Sunday. On Friday night, the following week, I still hadn't slept at all. And I got her up and I was trying to nurse her even though she was trying to sleep. And I was sing- her name is Shiloh. And I was singing the Neil Diamond song Shiloh, which is her namesake. And I was singing the same verse over and over, which is just young girl with fire. Um, Something said she understood. And I was just singing it like over and over and over. And I started to have a tactile hallucination, which was just like my skin was buzzing. I felt like, I don't know, I, I, I felt like suddenly she was taking my life force from me. It was like I was having this delusion and hallucination that as she was nursing, she was pulling all the life force from me. And she was growing and growing and growing. And it was this medical miracle. And people were coming from all over the world to take photos and to see this incredible baby that was just getting so big. And at the same time that she was doing that, she was sucking the life force out of me. So I was shriveling and dying. 
And was there any part of you that was observing this objectively and saying, this is my mind playing a trick on me? No, no it, it, it felt was real, real and it, it was, was all real. real. Yeah. And then um, suddenly it kind of shifted. And because I was getting so pulled, uh, my life force was being pulled, I suddenly was realized I was dying and I was in a coma. And at that point, I could kind of see my living room, but I knew my body was in a coma in a hospital. And I was dying, so I had to start waking myself up out of the coma or I was going to die. So at this point, I, like, let a blood-curdling scream out for my husband. And he's he's shaken up from sleep and runs out. He still talks about some kind of PTSD responses he has from that scream. And I handed him Shiloh. And then I started jumping up and down, screaming, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. Um, and, of course, he has no idea I haven't been sleeping no idea I've been doing this in the middle of the night and it's just he's very good under pressure and he knows that I have mental illness and so it wasn't the shock it is for some families but it was still incredibly scary um this part much of what I remember is spotty and I'm not sure if I'm a good storyteller about it because I you know I, obviously my brain was doing some weird things but he gets the baby back to sleep and then I remember being in the bed next to him and it's probably five in the morning and he is researching hospitals in the area because he he knows this is she's so far gone. This is not safe for her to be around the baby. She needs to be in the hospital, which is a really good thing because a lot of partners don't take that step. And that can be that's kind of where the scary things happen with the baby and um, moms get a lot worse. And then the safety is a concern. So then I'm laying next to him and I'm just quiet and kind of laying like a corpse. And he says, Heather, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to revive myself because I was having another tactile hallucination. I could feel cold water going through my whole body. And I thought that the IV was kind of like revitalizing me and I had to let it fill me up because I was this shriveled corpse at this point. And I could hear the hospital, like the machinery of the hospital beeping and I knew that my body was over there. I didn't really know where I, I knew I was kind of in the bed with my husband, but I knew that really I was in the hospital. And then I, I don't have a lot of memory. But you actually weren't in the hospital. No, I was okay. not in the hospital. Okay. We were in my house. It's too early to go to the hospital yet, but he has plans for the his his mother and uh, father, his stepfather to come watch the baby while he takes me to the hospital. Um, and this is a psychiatric hospital, not a medical hospital. And so they get me checked in. I don't really know I'm leaving everybody. They go back home. <laughs> but um, I'm fighting the nurses and the guards. I They told me later I had to be restrained and that I had that crazy adrenaline, that it was really hard for these big burly guys to get me to stop moving. I'm screaming, scaring the other patients. They finally get me to a room by myself. And um, suddenly I'm very calm, which... Maybe they gave me out of van. I don't know, but I was calm. And because I was so calm, I figured this is death. I'm in the waiting room to heaven. And then I got scared again. And so I was screaming. Um, they brought the hospital leader, uh, director to come talk to me. And she's trying to calm me down. She's like, you know, you have to really be quiet. Everybody's scared. You're scaring everybody. Um, and then I don't remember a lot until the next day when I was – just myself again. I was remarkably lucid. And so something I didn't mention is that when I was trying to get to sleep that like sixth night, I, I I had gotten a prescription from Ambien. So if I backtrack a little bit, I guess on the fifth night, we fig Eddie figured out, my husband figured out that I hadn't been sleeping. 
So we called the emergency line. They prescribed Ambien. And I'd been a longtime melatonin user, and sometimes I'd take one, and then I couldn't sleep. So I'd take another, and then I'd take another, which is safe with melatonin, but not with Ambien. And so I was confused, and I took three. I don't know if you've heard of the Ambien walrus, but uh, no. no, it's just, I guess sometimes with Ambien, people hallucinate. They drive to Vegas. They don't remember it. It's I don't know why it's called the walrus, but it's this phenomenon. And so the psychiatrist was like, wow. You were out of your mind yesterday, and you sound like a totally different person today. It must be the ambient. So they sent me home um, probably 24 or 48 hours later, and um, I, I was a little off. We went out to dinner. My mom had flown in at this point. And then I do have a kind of shard of a memory of being in a bathtub with my husband and my mom standing there, and I was just doing and saying bizarre things, and they're like, she has to go back to the hospital. So they brought me back to the hospital, and I was there for a total of the first three days plus the other stay for 29 days. And it started to get really scary for me at that point. Up until then, other than thinking I was in waiting for heaven, it hadn't been – I hadn't known how scary it was, and I hadn't the, – the delusions hadn't been as terrifying but suddenly they started to be really, really um, like the worst things my brain could conjure. So my whole family had died in a car accident. Um, I was a school shooter and I was living with the guilt and all. I could see all the dead bodies everywhere. I saw a towel on the ground in the bathroom and I was like, that's me. That's my dead body. And outside is hell. And if I walk out, I'll see all of hell burning. Wow. And yeah, really, really scary stuff. I remember... Um, my brother-in-law and my husband came to visit me and my brother-in-law had pen on his shirt and I thought it was blood and I thought that he had died and I was seeing his corpse and I got so upset that they had to send him out of the room. Um, another patient had the phone and was talking to someone and I thought it was my dad and that he had gone deaf and I grabbed the phone from the patient and I started screaming to my dad, which was obviously her loved one, not mine. And, um, Trying to think if there were any more. I So a, kind of a, a really scary thing about the hospital. I know you have surveys about psychiatric hospitals, but sometimes when you're that kind of patient, really volatile, you become a one-on-one -on -one or basically mm -hmm. you have to be arm's reach within a staff member. And because I wasn't sleeping, um, it was really difficult for them to figure out what to do with me at night. And I was pretty compliant as a patient. And, and they were giving you stuff to try to sleep or they didn't so want to they, put anything in you? We were just talking about this yesterday. They they made some really weird medical choices. So I, I was on an antipsychotic and, a, and an antidepressant throughout pregnancy. When I got to the hospital, they it was Prozac, the antidepressant. They amped up my Prozac to the max dose and they brought down my antipsychotic, which just really seems like the opposite. Yeah, that, what, does, that does know? seem. And... My husband was talking to his psychiatrist friend from school, and they were talking about this medicine called paliperidone or Invega, which is really, really good for stopping psychosis. And he was pleading with the By the, the way, that is an actual helicopter going by. Oh, my. You're not hallucinating. <laughs> so, yeah, they're not going to take me to heaven. Thank you. Um, so they, they made a lot of really questionable decisions with my medication, and I went through three different doctors, and ultimately, well, they 
I don't know what they were trying to do for sleep, but I was sleeping maybe 25 minutes a night across 24-hour spans. And, and from what I understand, that is like one of the worst things for people who are experiencing mania because it it's stress, lack yeah. of sleep, not eating enough. Those are all things that can launch people with bipolar one into, into mania. And even people who don't have bipolar, if you don't sleep enough, you can become psychotic. My psychiatrist was telling me that in med school for her, there were people who dealt with, who went through residency and fellowship. And because of the lack of sleep that they, in the shift work cycles, they would have psychiatric breaks, psychotic breaks, and they had no history of mental illness. So just it's it's very dangerous for people not to sleep no matter what their history is. But I don't remember if they were giving me anything. But the scary part for me was that um, – so if I'm sleeping 25 minutes a night and they're expecting us to sleep nine hours and I have to be in arm's length of someone, basically I'm in a bed in the dark for nine hours and only sleeping 25 minutes. And the person with me is in the dark and they don't have anything to do. So they sleep and they're not talking to me. And I'm just lying there, which exacerbates the delusions and the hallucinations. Mm. And even when I'm lucid, I want to talk to them or I'm hungry because I'm on antipsychotics and they make you starving. And so I want to get up and go get a snack and they wouldn't let me. And I really, I felt kind of like a caged animal at that point. Like, no, you have to stay in this room all the time, all the time. And I remember when I was in the partial hospitalization program after they came in and they played the song by Daughter, which is called Human. And there are just some lines about being an animal in a cage. And I just started sobbing. And this was maybe a couple of weeks after I started to recover. And I just like was such a visceral feeling of I had been an animal in a cage. And I had been so scary for everybody that they kept me in that room by myself a lot. And it was really that was that was probably one of the things that I didn't realize was traumatic at the time, but left some PTSD. And in terms of PTSD, I I still can't sleep without medication because I have this panic that happens. If I lay down and I haven't fallen asleep for 30 minutes, then I think, okay, it's going to be insomnia. If it's insomnia, I can't sleep. If I if it's I'm going to be exhausted the next day. Well, not even that. It's no. if it, if I can't sleep, then it's going to be mania. And then if it's going to be mania, then it's going to be psychosis and then I have to go back to the hospital. And what happened about when my daughter was about two and a half is that I had my first classic manic episode. So I had never had classic mania before, only hypomania. And part for the, of the, for those who don't know, uh, hypomania is a lesser version yes. of of mania that can often be really enjoyable, right. although you wind up sometimes doing things so compulsively that you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that for a day and a half straight and i ran up my credit card bill and i started nine projects that i'm never gonna finish i painted bookshelves in the backyard in the middle of the night with a headlamp on when i was (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was my project but um in 2018 i was working on this mural project for us for my job it was just kind of an extra project and there's a little bit of extra stress to finish it and there had been some medication changes And just I could not sleep for two days in a row. And And this is what led to your first bout of classic mania. Classic mania, which is after the postpartum psychosis, two years after. And um, that was a situation that I I, I do realize that coping with uh, mental illness, with humor, can be really healing because 
that particular manic episode, the bizarre things that I thought and did in hindsight are funny. So I do understand where your guest was coming from mm-hmm. in coping with what she went through. Um, my postpartum psychosis episode was anything but funny, but the manic episode ended up being um, not humorous to anybody else probably. I, manic, manic people are, can destroy relationships. But um, I ended up voluntarily going into the hospital having a blast that time because there were a lot of manic people and you have all these conversations like – are you are or maybe are we robots or are <laughs> uh, is all uh, suddenly I believe in reincarnation when I manic I n- that's not really something in my belief system or my spirituality otherwise but definitely think I've had many past lives and so does everybody else and so we really connect on this deep level and um I did have some hallucinations after that I remember seeing another patient we were I was at a McDonald's with my mom and I saw him standing behind her wearing like a spacesuit kind of thing. I could see his face and he had a spacesuit. I just like looked at him and I was like, oh, he's there. That's mm, normal. And didn't tell anybody. And that episode, I ended up losing my job. Um, Not because I did anything inappropriate with clients or with anybody else. Um, I did send a kind of aggressive email to staff, got put on probation when I came back. It was all kind of a nasty situation where we may have been able to sue for wrongful termination, but it just not something we wanted to go through. But so that was in 2018. I had decided that I didn't want any more children because of how traumatic the the postpartum psychosis episode had been. And I was terrified of getting pregnant to the point where I talked to a doctor about having a hysterectomy, which is way more extreme than I would have to go. But I was just that scared. Um, and then my best friend got pregnant. And I started thinking, well, maybe we could do it again and we could control my sleep. And I'll talk to my doctor about it. And I kind of floated the idea by her six months before I talked to my husband about it. And I just asked her, you know, what would we do to prevent it? And she would, she said, well, you would have to be open to going to the hospital again. You would have to be open to being on really strong meds so that you couldn't breastfeed. Um, we would, you would be on medicine during your pregnancy you, I think we could do it, but you're on a medicine right now, which is not safe for babies. So we're going to have to get you off that and onto a different mood stabilizer. And then once I was fully on the mood stabilizer, then I floated the idea to my husband because really he was the one who managed everything when I was in the hospital. And that was traumatic for him, obviously. So he was like, I, he really wanted more kids. So he said, I think we can do it if you're up for it. Normal pregnancy, we had plans in place. I said, oh, okay, yeah, I can go to the hospital again. But I, I never really processed. Psychiatric or regular? Psychiatric. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely a hospital birth. Um, but I was like, okay, I agree that if this happens again, I'll go to the hospital. Um, and pregnancy progressed the same way that it did before, very easy. Um, I had to be induced this time. Um, so, again, that that's – that leads to a very sleepless night and maybe two sleepless nights of the induction. And then again, not very much sleep the first night after the baby's born. I remember panicking in the hospital. My husband had gone to sleep on the uncomfortable little couch and I had brought my bag of medication with me. And I was like, this is, it's happening. It was so early, but I was like, it's happening again. I can't sleep. I can't sleep. So I went and got a visceral, which is like an antihistamine. It's a really mild, makes you tired, but very mild. And I kind of snuck it. I didn't ask a doctor or anything. And then I was like, oh, I have to get released by a psychiatric nurse 
if I if she finds out that I snuck a medication, she's not going to let me go. So then I page. It's like two in the morning, and I page the nurse on call. And like I I took a Vistril from my bag, and she didn't care at all. She it was obviously not important. Um, but I was starting to panic because I knew that I wasn't. I had that same kind of dopamine rush that I had had with the mm-hmm. first baby, and I knew that this could be something. Um, so I ended up. They ended up releasing me. And we went home and we got the baby to sleep and I, I, I made something up like I don't think I can sleep. if she, we, we had had a plan that my husband was going to do formula feedings at night. And so I would breastfeed during the day. We would formula feed at night. And I made up some, some story that like I don't think I can sleep if she wakes up and I really need to sleep. But I, I knew that it was kind of going south again. And so I went to a separate room. And I was having some really mild delusions compared to the first time, which were like I, God or the universe was sending me these disturbing thoughts, but then he was swatting them away. And so I would have a thought and it would go away. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm connecting to God. I'm connecting to the universe. And I didn't really – at that moment, it was like a really pleasant feeling. It was like not a scary thought. But then I kind of came out of that and I was like, I'm not sleeping. I've been laying here for four hours. And then it turned into – a panic attack. And I didn't have any panic meds. I didn't have any, you know, Valium or diazepam or anything like that. So there was no way to stop it. I hadn't told my husband I was having these thoughts yet. And so finally it's like six- Because you didn't want to burden him or you felt ashamed or why? I was scared. I didn't, I was scared that it was happening again and I didn't want him to go through it again. I didn't want to admit that something could be starting again. I just was scared. You know, there was a ton of PTSD from that that never got processed. And the hospital was a really scary thing for me. And I just thought they're going to put me back in the hospital. So I finally wake him up. It's like 430 in the morning at this point. And I say, I I think it's happening again. I I can't sleep. I was just having this panic attack. And he says, we're going to follow the plan. We have a plan. I'm going to email your doctor. She was kind of on call, my psychiatrist. And six in the morning, she calls him, which is, you know, amazing, very rare to be that connected. And she says, I think it's just regular postpartum insomnia and PTSD happening. So what we're going to do is we're going to be really aggressive with the meds to stop this. So she put me on like the highest possible dose of Seroquel and three different benzos. And that was just to force me to sleep and stop any psychosis that was happening. Um, and then it ended up that we had, it it did, it did. Yeah. It stopped, it stopped it from becoming psychosis, but I was manic for six months. And so at first I was just hyper, 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 not, um, you know, very verbally aggressive. My husband, I feel like I was acutely manic for like two weeks. I asked my husband later, like, how long do you think I was acutely manic? And he's like, "Mm, five months. It's like, oh, I didn't realize I was perceived as being that acute for that long. Um, spending like $60 at Target a day on drive up and uh, buy. It was around Christmas time. So I was buying things on Etsy, spending $400 on Etsy gifts for Christmas that nobody really needed. And um, But the, the thing that I really want to convey is that now, two years later, I have a healthy baby. We're a family of four. We thought we were going to be a family of three. I didn't have to go to the hospital again because we planned for it and because we are proactive. And the scary thing about postpartum psychosis is that we don't talk about it and nobody 
hardly knows anything about it. So we, I did a presentation about it in October, and I polled people in my support group. I said, before your episode, what did you know about it? And it was 50-50 between I knew nothing or I had heard of Andrea Yates. Do you know who Andrea Yates yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. The woman who killed her children. Yeah, I think five kids. She's still in the ho- she's still in the um in prison and every year every time her parole comes up, she waives her rights. She just doesn't want to be out in the world with what happened and um so that's kind of what people know. They either don't know anything or they think of it as the sickness that makes you kill your children. Um you don't have any control and you hurt your kids. And so Nobody talks about it. Nobody plans for it. The doctors don't plan for it. They, One in seven women have postpartum depression, but only one to two in a thousand have postpartum psychosis. So I was recently coached not to say it's rare anymore because if people think it's rare, then they don't learn about it. They don't think this could happen to me. And so we can say, yeah, it's 0.01 to 0.02% of births. And yeah, that means that it doesn't happen very often. But if you don't know that it's a possibility, then you have no plan. And one of the reasons I wanted to come on and talk to you is that women in this group often lose custody of their kids, their spouses leave them, their partners leave them, and the rest of their lives are just shattered because of this episode that they were not prepared for. And I just feel so lucky that as intense and scary and PTSD causing as my first episode was, we had a plan and we got to complete my family and I didn't have to go through it again. And your psychiatrist and your husband sound awesome. They are amazing. Like my husband drove six hours yesterday so I could talk to you about this. And my psychiatrist is, she emails, if I email her, she'll email me back. And yeah, I have such a great support group. And I, I love being part of mental health advocacy because, you know, I, I get to meet other people who are passionate about these it's, things. It's a deep bond. It it's is a, it's a incredible. deep, deep bond. Yeah. And especially in the postpartum psychosis community because it, I don't want to say rare because I'm not supposed to say rare, but it's such a small community and it's such a misunderstood community that you can say, you could say something like, I looked at my child today and I just... I wished I had never had him and I feel like a terrible mom and I I think he hates me and these things that if you said them to someone who had never gone through that, they would judge you. In the park, they would scoot the other end of the bench. Yeah. Uh, Can you publicly say what the name of your support group is or is it a private uh, group? Well, it is private. You can search for it and I'm going to, it's. It's It starts with pregnancy, pregnancy and postpartum psychosis. Um, it has a butterfly on it. But you have to be you have to be a survivor or you can be a loved one of a survivor who's looking for answers. So okay. we have some parents of people who have lost their daughters to suicide um, during their episode. We have some partners, some husbands and boyfriends and partners who their loved one is currently in an episode and they have no idea what to do. So they just went on Facebook and search for a group, which is actually how I found the group. That's And is it a national group? It is. It's international. And is it online or is it's, it in person? It's, it's on Facebook. So okay. it technically it's it's just um textual. Like mm-hmm. we we just, you know, message gotcha. and it's moderated and um there are peer support groups through Postpartum Support International, which I would highly recommend anybody who's experiencing a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder visits. That's postpartum.net. 
Um, and we'll have you for the show notes for this episode. We'll have uh, you, if you wouldn't mind, give us all the links. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, but, yeah, the the bond that you, you make with these people, like no one can understand what it was like unless they've done it. They've experienced it. And um, – just getting to I, – I actually wanted to share a couple things if we have time. Yeah. Um, so I asked I'm – a, I'm a moderator in the advocacy and research chat for this group. And I asked them what they would like to tell the world about postpartum psychosis um, so that other people knew um, what they wish people knew about it. So – One person says, I feel that is imperative to convey that PPP is nearly always a traumatic experience. I believe many people actually get PTSD from it. And like any potentially deadly illness should be acknowledged as such. Someone else said, it's important to point out that this can happen to any woman who becomes pregnant. Someone else said, my daughter was a dentist and she got PPP from lack of sleep. We had no idea that such a strong, independent young woman could be brought down like this. It devastated her and she took her own life when her baby was six months old. The OBGYNs didn't take it seriously because they had never seen it. The psychiatrists who treat it just throw drugs at it with zero experience with PPP. It has devastated me and my family. I feel that doctors should have told us what to watch for. I lost my sister to PPP and she died by suicide in 2019 when my nephew was four, four months old. In 2020, I had my daughter and later went through PPP myself. I was able to get the help I needed and didn't end up down that road. My thoughts to share... PPP has no bias as to who it affects. There needs to be more education to the community surrounding this topic, acceptance and research about it, and backing to make more available the resources and proper organizations and facilities and medically trained professionals to treat those who experience PPP and the support systems of those. We absolutely need mother-baby units in this country, which are hospitals where the mother can be with her baby while she's being treated because... We know that especially those first six weeks, the attachment that the baby forms to the mother impacts the life of the child mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And not only is it important for the mother to heal, but if that baby doesn't get the time with the mother, which in our country is very, very, very rare. Um, in the UK, there are many more mother-baby units. Um, another person said, my undiagnosed bipolar until recently was what spurred the psychosis And I still had at least five relapses in the last 10 years. It is awful when you relapse and almost lost everything. Another person said, lack of sleep was my trigger. And the last person in this section said, my psychosis was believed to have been spurred by, at at the time, undiagnosed bipolar 1, but I'd had it all along. So you hear in a couple of those people talking about bipolar disorder. So Mm -hmm. at least I think the statistic is, uh, 50% of women-ish a range, but around 50% of women who go on to have children who have bipolar disorder are at risk of postpartum psychosis. So at, as of now, what we know about it, bipolar disorder is the biggest predictor of postpartum psychosis. And many people, like uh, like your guest, have never been diagnosed with bipolar prior to their episode right. and then go on to have it for the rest of their lives. So Either there were signs of it or it's an onset and the hormonal changes just tip them into bipolar and that that's the rest of their lives, you know, from pregnancy. Um, having the bipolar, not the psychosis. Yes. And, okay. but, but some of these women um, go, go into my – so I was in the hospital for 30 days essentially um, and then recovered pretty quickly after that. 
I just read a post yesterday of a mother who's been there for eight weeks so far, which is also not as long as some of the women there, but it made me think like, oh my gosh, eight, I was there four weeks, doubling that. There are women who have said they've been there nine months. Um, without their baby. Without their baby. So this baby, wow. and thank God my husband was such an amazing father, is such an amazing father that he gave that bond to our daughter. I It took me 18 months to feel any kind of real connection to my daughter because I lost that first critical six weeks. And I felt like a terrible mother most of the time because he could hold her and she would stop crying immediately. And I would hold her and it would take 45 minutes. And I just thought, I'm the mother. That's supposed to be me. Why Why can't I do it? I don't – and it just that, that disconnection. And so you think about – Especially for a perfectionist. <laughs> a lapsed perfectionist. A lapsed perfectionist. Yes. So yes. think of those mothers who spend nine months in the hospital and then yeah. try to come out and be a mother to a baby they don't know. It's terrible. God, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, kudos on being uh, such a good advocate for this. Um, I, I, I really appreciate you – coming, making the trip, and, and sharing um, your strength and your experience. And um, to anybody who's who's out there uh, who's pregnant or had a baby, uh, I, I hope that this um, helps helps them kind of be more aware about what, what could potentially happen and the pitfalls. Before we wrap up, can I no, read this? No, we're done. Can I, I, I love your struggle in a sentence surveys. And I asked the mothers that are in my research and advocacy group if they could kind of boil their experience down to some sure. struggles in a sentence. So I'd like to finish with that. So I asked them to start with it felt. So it felt like sheer panic and anxiety. It felt like I was in fast forward, high alert, shaking with adrenaline. Then I lost my mind. In lucid moments, it felt confusing and terrifying. It felt like I had no control over my body and flailing limbs. The aftermath, I was in a deep depression. It was like a hopeless, dark hole. I felt like I would never get better. But I did, and so will you. It felt like I was trapped and shackled in a far corner of my mind and that I had no control of the sickness that took over. It felt like my body went through the motions of daily life while my mind was in a different, horrible realm. It felt like the antithesis to what motherhood is supposed to feel like. It felt like it was all a dream, or maybe it was a nightmare that I was trapped in and couldn't get out of. The worst part was that I couldn't tell that every that it wasn't reality, because to me, everything was reality. Maybe another sentence should be, it ruined my life. It's heavy. Yeah. Wow. Well, Heather, thank you so much for, for coming in and sharing your experience. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really enjoyed talking to her. And the Jessica that she was referencing uh, is the episode with Jessica Eckhoff, which is uh, another great episode that you might want to check out. We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Ico. Uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I will never be good enough in every way, shape, or form. I will always just come up short. Uh, that one is, that. there is a lot packed in there. I will always come up short. I think a lot of us can relate to that. It's so easy to never stop and go, well, what, what have I done? 
you know, even if it's something that, you know, isn't an accolade or money, just did I make a new friend? You know, did I do something nice for myself? Did I keep a roof over my head? Have I been able to feed myself? This is from the fear survey filled out by Nadine and, uh, she writes, tonight I am meeting my mother after two years of estrangement. I'm afraid she will make me shrink into a crumpled mess like she used to when I was younger. I'm afraid she will think my house is dirty and unclean and that I have aged. I'm afraid she will monopolize the conversation by turning it into an interview and I will overshare until she says we should wrap it up. I'm afraid I will cry. I'm afraid that my years of therapy will slowly dissolve as each second passes in her presence. I'm afraid it will threaten my years of sobriety. I'm afraid I'll wish I hadn't met her at all. Yeah, that sounds intense. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? The podcast is the reason I was emotionally capable of seeking help, drawing boundaries, and finding freedom. Thank you, Paul. That means so much to me. That is so awesome to read. And I just want to um, give you a, a something to think about um, when I am meeting somebody that I have a very complicated relationship with is I, I meet them in a place where I can leave if I need to. Um, I don't carpool, although these days, you know, you can, you can always call an Uber and get out of there or a Lyft. Um, but you have her coming over to your house and, you know, I suppose you can always say you leave, need to leave my house right now, but I find it so much easier and less a feeling of being cornered if I meet that person at a restaurant or someplace neutral. But thank you for that. Uh, this is an email I got from Eloisa. And um, she writes, hi and happy new years. How about getting a side hustle for extra cash this new year? Uh, I share 10 examples here and then there is a, a, a link. And I didn't click on it because I, I am already deep into uh, my 2024 side hustle. And I want you to hear me out uh, on this. Um, we all know about the billionaires and their rockets and their constantly trying to get further and further into outer space. Well, that's not feasible for the rest of us. So what I am doing, my new side hustle, is I'm offering hot air balloons uh, to people. I offer rides, but you only go as high as the money you have. So the poorer you are, the closer you are to the ground. And so obviously the poorest people is just... You're riding right along the grass and hopefully just filled with burning, burning shame. And the other thing, the reason I'm starting it is, yeah, I need money, but I also want to help the billionaires to feel better about themselves. And it, it offers them, as they look down from space, a way to visualize their wealth. Because a lot of times they don't have a concept, you know, two billion, three billion. What's that mean? This way they can feel it as they look down at the top of your head. Scraping along the scraping along the grass. I don't know if it's gonna make money, but I feel good about it. I feel like it's 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 helping like uh I think specifically five people. 
And they're good people. They're good. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by your friendly neighbor and about uh, her body dysmorphia. She writes, the mirror is a sadist and I am a masochist that can't stop indulging it. Uh, snapshot from her life. Every day I look in the mirror. I like what I see. An hourglass figure, small waist, big hips, nice face, pretty smile. Then I turn to a profile view. I see my belly, my mom tum. I berate myself, remind myself that I may be pretty when being looked at directly, but I am actually a fat pig, a disgusting piece of shit. I do this every day. I can't stop myself from turning to the side and hyper-focusing on that one location on my body for at least five minutes every single day, several times a day. You know, this is going to sound like, oh, Paul, go fuck off. But one of the things that helps me not focus on my physical flaws is helping people. Um, calling somebody on the phone and asking how they're doing. I don't know. It, it helps fill up uh, a part of me. Not completely, but it help fill, helps a little bit to fill up that part of me that I'm looking for looks to fill or whatever, money. Hot air balloon rides. This is from the love survey filled out by Zipper Horse. And they write, uh, I love that I finally found one thing that I really like about myself. I have a lot of compassion. And that's something I love about me. That's awesome. Thank you for that. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as filthy litter box. Uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You're a smart person and funny, but people think you're annoying and ugly. I make others uncomfortable. I like how that started off good. And then it pulled a switchblade and just started stabbing. Thank you for that. This is from the back in time survey filled out by, uh, our friend Iko again, uh, share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. I would go back to my younger self, about eight years old, to the first time I was sexually abused. I would hold my own hands and tell myself that I won't be a burden to anyone if I speak up, that I deserve to feel safe, and that I should trust my instincts, that what happened was wrong. So much worse could have been avoided if in those first moments I would have felt like I could speak up in any way. I feel so much sadness seeing this image and knowing that that eight-year-old is about to go through the worst years of her life. And literally, anyone could have saved her and no one has. If only I could go back in time and save her, like she deserved to have been saved. Uh, take anything from nature and decide who would you want to give it to. I would lead my younger self to a beautiful clearing in the woods with soft, beautiful green moss where the temperature is nice and warm, just a place for her to rest, to feel at peace and be safe, to be able to just look up at the sky, a place where she can play and let everything go to completely be herself. Is there, that's so beautiful. And is there, I don't know, for those of us that grew up near nature, I grew up um, in a neighborhood that backed up to uh, some woods and 
uh, just the memories I have of just being a kid and exploring and playing games in the woods. And I don't know, it was just, I love it so much. Uh, pick a positive moment in your day and share it. On my bike, after seeing someone I haven't seen in a while, feeling the cold air, my body slowly heating because of the movement, looking at the blue sky, hearing children play, cars moving in the distance, looking at the bare trees, feeling the power in my legs, moving myself back home, happy and fulfilled, feeling connected. That's awesome. Thank you for that, Ico. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by <laughs> a person who calls themselves bitch. I said what I said. Share things you love. I love to imagine the titles of the books I will write someday when I have my shit together. This may or may not happen as middle age has arrived, but here's a few examples. Stop being shitty to each other. Fuck you, mom. Sis, go eat a bag of dicks. The fuckery. You get the idea. I also love the smell of to tomato vines. I can't uh, recall what to tomato vines smell like. Uh, I love the way my cat loves me by ramming his head into me and curling upside down in my arms until he is in a complete arc. I love kissing in the rain. And I love swimming outside when the water is warmer than the air. Oh, that is such a good one. That is such a good one. And swimming sometimes, like when you were a kid in the summer and, you, and you're uh, swimming in a pool and all of a sudden, yeah, the, the cold wind blows in and it starts raining. And it's like, I don't give a shit that it's raining. I'm in the pool. Thank you for those. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, Gwen. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. She is in her 30s, says that she was uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I've experienced multiple instances of sexual abuse, but the most life-altering was an ongoing coercive relationship with a former boyfriend. It all started when I had to get a biopsy taken in my vagina and couldn't have sex for at least a week or two. He was impatient and became more pushy and needy as the days went on. I wound up giving up on saying no too soon. This led to a bacterial infection, which was followed by a series of yeast infections because he wouldn't wait long enough for me to heal and would keep wearing me down. By the time I finally healed, I had started to associate sex with him with pain and developed a lot of anxiety around it. Over time, my sex drive got less and less until I didn't want to have sex with him at all. The begging, guilt tripping, accusations of cheating, arguing, crying, and threats to leave were so such a turnoff. He didn't give me the time and space I needed to heal. He continued to pressure me over the course of years and I lost interest entirely. But he was my best friend, so I stayed with him for years. I eventually left that relationship, but the emotional scars lingered. I was actually confused by my current boyfriend at first because he didn't pressure me. He didn't want sex nearly as often as my ex. 
My brain was so warped from being pressured to have sex against my will all the time that I actually thought my current boyfriend wasn't attracted to me. I thought he might be cheating or something. He wasn't, but it took a lot of time and work to accept that he just had a lower libido. It didn't mean anything bad about either of us. We've been together seven years and we are finally more comfortable openly expressing ourselves sexually. I had a hysterectomy this year and he was so patient with me, making sure what we did sexually, what we did sexually as I healed was on my terms. He never pressured or guilted me or made me feel like he was going to leave or cheat. Not being able to have penetrative sex for a while led us to branch out into some interesting kinks that have spiced things up. We've taken Molly here and there, which has done wonders to help me process my trauma and open up lines of communication we were too nervous to share before. I'm finally able to truly feel safe with my partner sexually. That's awesome. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My brother used to physically threaten me a lot. He would throw things at me until I couldn't take it anymore. The older he got, the scarier he got. Punching walls, threatening us with knives, needing the cops called. I often was jolted out of my sleep to hear him screaming at my mother, wondering if he was going to kill her this time. I now live in a high state of alert. I'm sensitive to loud noises and men screaming. I'm hypersensitive to men's negative emotions, always waiting for them to go over the top with their aggression. I've experienced a lot of different forms of gaslighting and manipulation. I've had people threaten suicide as a way to keep me around and under control or to prevent them from having to take accountability. I've had to make sure a partner wasn't going to hurt himself when he got too drunk and blew up and would punch and break things. He broke several of his own bones on two separate occasions, and I always felt responsible, like it was my fault for arguing. I should have just let it go. I've experienced more abusers than this form probably has space for. That's so good that you're in a healthy relationship, though, because so many people, they just repeat that pattern. Any positive experiences with abusers? My coercive former partner was my best friend, closer to family, for seven years. Uh, he was otherwise a good man, and he took care of me. We had a lot in common. I never told anyone who knows him what he did because I don't want them to hate him. My desire to protect him makes it harder to find support and heal. I'm so mad at him for not being patient. I feel like we could have avoided years of suffering in a miserable, unwanted sex life had he just waited a week or two. My current partner's patience was a huge relief and a huge turn-on darkest thoughts. I gravitate towards very dark content, true crime at the surface level, but lots of stories of horrible people doing horrible things to each other. I watch disturbing movies, read disturbing stories, and seek out personal stories of violent, sexual, and often and other crimes often. I like to find stories about manipulators and abusers. It is somewhat comforting, but seems weird to others. No, I think a lot of us get that. We talk about that in our uh, uh, Zoom support group, the Patreon level that we do on on Sundays. Um, really, by the way, really nice group of people. Shout out to to all of you guys. And uh, yeah, we were talking about that the other day. Like, why do we find a comfort in really dark documentaries? Um, and shout out to to Brett. <laughs> who who uh 
and I'm so glad she did this. She said, you know, I just have to tell you sometimes at the end of the podcast, when you say your tribe is out there, it's just a matter of finding them. I just want to tell you to go fuck off. And somebody else said me too. And I was like, Hey, I appreciate you being honest. Uh, darkest secrets. I used to be a serial cheater when I was with my ex-boyfriend who was coercive. I couldn't get aroused for him, but I was always interested in other men. I would go out alone and hope to meet a one night stand or someone to take me away from him. I could get turned on by the thought of being with other guys, but being with my ex-boyfriend filled me with so much anxiety and stress that it was hard to get in the mood at all. I'm happily faithful to my current boyfriend and thankfully don't have that problem. I actually barely think about other guys. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize about us each dressing in lingerie and filming ourselves or being filmed, possibly watched having sex live. It makes me feel uh, hot and desirable, whereas I often don't have much confidence in my body. I do think I'm good at sex and know how to move for the camera to get the best visual. Sharing it makes me feel a little conceited, but also concerned that if I were to do that, what I'd get would be a turnoff and I'd feel insecure. I also want to have sex in a body of water somewhere, maybe by a waterfall or in a hot tub. It just seems really relaxing on a hot day. I say you go for a deep puddle, maybe right by the side of the road on a, on a, not a, not a busy highway. You need a little privacy but just a nice pothole. When, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my parents that they let me down. They weren't supportive or encouraging enough. They didn't help me get uh, accommodation for my undiagnosed disabilities and treated my symptoms like they were my fault for being lazy. They didn't build up my self-esteem and encourage me to follow my dreams in ways that would have helped me actually do so. I have imposter syndrome about everything because I don't think they taught me how to develop confidence. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my brain and body to magically heal enough so I can reach a higher baseline of strength, stamina, and confidence to pursue my dreams. I suffer chronic pain and fatigue, and it makes working a crappy job really difficult. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of them, but I'm often pretty guarded. Uh, I I think there's a typo here. It says, I lord APT to share more personal details with strangers online. I don't know what that means. And so, as a result... I cast you straight to hell. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't feel much different. I think I would rather talk about them than write about them. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Coercion is not okay. It's often considered rape, and a person who would coerce you is too selfish to deserve you. They will destroy your sex drive and mess with your head if you stay. You'll have a lifetime of unwanted, mediocre sex to not look forward to. If they can't get it together fast enough, it's best to leave. Thank you for that. These are some loves from LJ. And uh, 
LJ writes, I love my best friend. We often hike together and can talk for miles and miles without ever running out of things to say. It's one of those friendships where it sometimes feel like the time stands still when we're together. I was new to the area when I took my current job and was feeling pretty lonely. She seemed like someone I wanted to know, but it's so hard to make new friends as an adult. One day, when the loneliness was pretty high, I decided to step outside my comfort zone. I fucking love reading that. Uh, I walked over to her classroom after school and outright asked, do you want to be friends? I've got a football we can go throw. Looking back, I still cringe at how I sounded like such a dork, but she and I threw that football every day after school for a month, and we've been inseparable ever since. She reminds me of how rewarding it can be to take a risk, even when my anxiety tries to talk me out of it. Oh, I love that one so much. So much. Our comfort zone can just be a slow, a slow death. And by comfort zone, I mean the predictable, I don't want any surprises, I don't want anything new. I mean, feeling comfortable is good. You understand what I'm saying. Don't make me fucking explain this. This is a happy moment. And this is filled out by... Oh, it's our friend Iko again. You know, Iko, you're getting a little greedy. And I should blame myself because I'm reading your surveys. Iko writes, I'm getting to know a new person. We met through a smile and having the same haircut. I saw her across the room at choir practice. I smiled at her and I could feel that she was a very nice person. She first noticed my bald head and smiled at me. We ended up sitting next to each other a few weeks later. We started talking and we connected in a very pure way. She always makes me laugh and feel a lot better without doing anything. We're talking more and more outside of choir practice. We connect without words. We've known a few of the same hurts. We're both working hard on healing. We don't need each other, but are able to give one another a safe space, have fun, and listen. It feels very good to have found this friendship. It feels like a very healthy connection. We've had so many happy moments. And seeing slash feeling this friendship develop has made me so happy. There are so many possible happy moments that are still to come. Love it. Love it. And when I really love it, I got to say it in that 20s jazz. I always love it. I wish I had a bullhorn. I could say that through. How fucking weird was that? That 20s jazz thing where they started singing through the megaphone. Oh, my God. And people thought that was amazing. Oh, my God. This is so new and exciting. Listen to them up there singing through the bullhorn, doing the Charleston. And then finally, these are some loves from uh, Cracked and Confused. And uh, they write, I love when I'm stopped at a traffic light and look over to see the driver next to me singing their lungs out. I love when I yawn and my cat sticks his snoot in my mouth to smell my stank breath. And I love this last one. I love secretly having erotic text conversations in public around clueless bystanders. That is fantastic. Thank you for those. So if you're out there, Brett, your tribe is out there, go find them. Oh, the other thing I should share, and I, I don't think Brooke minds me sharing this, is uh, 
she said, you know, I feel like this Zoom group is my tribe. And that gave me such a good, such a good feeling. And um, yeah, I'm going to segue this into a, a, a plug for uh, more Patreon donations. This was not planned. But uh, we could really use uh, more monthly donors. We are about a little over halfway towards our goal of having 1,500 monthly donors. And uh, yeah, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. The the Sunday support group Zoom Hangout is at the $20 uh, and above uh, monthly level. But um, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mentalpod. And uh, you'll see all the different tiers that you can uh, sign up for. And it's much, much appreciated because I could not do this podcast without you. You know, advertising comes and goes and it it does not pay the bills. Um, it's nice and it helps, but it does not pay the bills. Um, so thank you to those of you who have signed up. And for those of you who are uh, struggling financially, uh, yeah, set aside some money for my hot air balloon rides. Um, but don't uh, don't sweat. Don't feel guilty if you don't have the money to uh, to be a supporter. I totally understand. Take care of your yourself. Get on your feet. Do what you got to do because there are non financial ways you can you can help the podcast. You can give us a nice uh, review on Apple Podcast. Uh, give us a good rating. Spread the word through social media about the podcast. Uh, follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and I don't know if I'm going to say X. Again, really, uh, but I got to tell you, the owner of X went on the highest hot air balloon ride. So high. Really, Paul? This is how we're going to end this? Yeah, this is how we're going to end this. And uh, thank you, those of you who have been giving me nice feedback about the music that I do, uh, sharing that. So, um this is uh, a song that I call uh, Groovy Weirdness. And uh, just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. And enjoy this groovy weirdness. Mm-hmm.